This is a District Conversations podcast and I am delighted to be joined by Matthew Nolan, uh, an uh, acclaimed musician, uh, a busy man. A very busy man. And, uh, and we're here today to talk about Haxon, which has taken pe- uh, place as part of Puka Festival. For the, the people that, that haven't been initiated with Puka, it's a, a, a sound-based festival that will be taking place between October 1st and November 2nd in Athboy, Drogheda and Trim. Um, the tagline, I suppose, is folklore, food, myth, music to celebrate the ancient holiday of sound. Um, and that's sort of where you come in, uh, Matthew. Um, so how did your involvement in, in Puka come about? Uh, it came about uh, by chance, uh, but I think also by, I'm hoping, by, by reputation. Um, over the last few years, uh, I've managed to pull together some really nice projects, primarily around old horror film. And uh, any opportunity to work with film from the 1920s, uh, especially kind of European art house horror film, um, presents a really beautiful challenge for me as a as a musician and as a, as a producer. Mm. So every every show um, invites a, a different way of working, um, and this particular one, because Hexen is uh, such an unusual film um, and such a progressive film, given the time that it was made. I mean, the film's almost 100 years old, wow. um, but it's surprisingly modern in its in its sensibilities, especially around um, you know. Uh, marginal identities and um, the way it treats madness um, and also the film itself is a is a in many ways rails against you know hypocrisy cultural hypocrisy so it's, it's a surprisingly relevant and prescient film for the for the here and now so it's always nice to be presented with a project that's not just a product of the time mm. but that somehow can resonate with with the here and now um, and what makes this film particularly interesting for me is that it had a second life in the 1960s. Um, okay. It began its life in the 20s. It, it became quite a notorious film. Um, I think it got censored and banned and cut up and presented in all kinds of garbled forms over about 30 or 40 years. But the literary counterculture in, in the US uh, latched upon it in the late 1960s. Um, and there's a wonderful version of it, slightly shorter than the theatrical version from the 20s, uh, with a voiceover by William Burroughs. Oh, wow. And it's that Burroughs text that I find particularly exciting to work with because we're going to reprise an old tradition that was very common within film, especially in, uh, in the European, in, in, the, in the continent in Europe of the, of the film explainer or live film narration. So we've got two wonderful personas. Um, one, uh, a very dear friend of mine who's a professor of, of drama at Trinity College called Matthew Causey. He's a very experienced uh, theater practitioner um, and, and very comfortable in this avant-garde world. Mm-hmm. And the other is a v- highly regarded performer um, and musician and spoken word artist and son of, of jazz royalty. This is Eric okay, Lewis, well. okay, yeah. to take on the other live narration role. So th- this, this text that Burroughs created, um, which is very rooted in the film mm-hmm. um, and very respectful of the film, is now going to add another layer of, you know, I think dramatic engagement for this particular project. And you mentioned so so with the project itself, was it a case of you you wanted to do this film in particular, and and it was something that that it fit Puka. There's parallels between sort of uh, the, the narrative and and sound as well. There's, there's elements of that. Was that a case where you had this in in the back in the back pocket, so to speak? Yeah, I've I've been I've revisited this about six or seven months ago, um, and was was looking for the right presenter. Uh, and I just happened to know somebody who's heavily involved with Puka, uh, Neve Lunny, um, and we had one of those classic schoolgate conversations about what she was doing and what I was doing, 
um, and when she heard about this particular project and, and me looking for a, a home for it and the right space to present it within the right context, mm. um, the more she spoke about Puka, the more I realized this is the kind of festival I really want to be part of. And it's the kind of festival that this show will have a perfect home within. And with with festivals like this, is um, it, it ties in so well. That you've you've done stuff before. We actually interviewed you a couple of years ago. I think it was for St Patrick's Festival. Uh, mm-hmm. Festival. So in in um, was it St Patrick's Cathedral? It was for a project called uh, Vampire. Yeah, so Vampire. Yeah, for the Bram Stoker Festival. Oh, it was for Bram Stoker yeah, in twenty seventeen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so when it comes to the clientele that, that you want arriving to this are going to be the people that are into the sort of the more supernatural sort of they're into horror they're into um they're into this world does that does that add an element of pressure is that something that you enjoy because it, you're you're amongst uh you're amongst people that you feel share a similar love to you um I, i'm i like to think that you know people come to the shows because they share a similar interest um they're you know attracted to you know that similar period in history or they they like the kind of music that I like and that I've been producing for the mm. last few years. But actually, the truth is that audiences are way more eclectic and broad. And it's it's always interesting to see who, who crosses the, the, the threshold. Um, people who are just curious about what it is that, that awaits them, you know, in this darkened space. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you like to think that you can present a few, you know, controlled surprises and then a few genuine shocks over the course of the whatever the 73 74 minutes runtime of this particular film but for me it, it's it's about allowing audiences to connect with these films um, and i think and you know maybe this is naive or maybe I've, I'm, I'm, I'm misguided but i think a more contemporary musical soundtrack offers an easier way in Mm. To, to, to engaging with these kinds of films. Well, you mentioned that in the previous interview that the, you were given a degree of latitude in terms of what you can actually achieve. Um, is that something, again, is that something that makes, does that hinder or does that help your, your process because you sort of, you've, you've got a blank canvas, so to speak, to work from? No, the blank canvas is great. And I think this is why I've ended up returning to, to horror film um, and particular film from this, as I said, this particular, this European kind of tradition. Mm. Um, because it opens up a whole range of, of sonic possibilities. Um, I worked on a remake of Nosferatu mm-hmm. last year by a, an Italian visual artist, and he, he remade it and gave it this beautiful contemporary makeover. It's a hand-drawn animated version of the film, um, and he was totally open-minded about what we brought. To, this is interesting because it was an actual director mm. involved, but he said, treat it as a blank canvas, um, and we ended up using all kinds of weird instrumentation <laughs> to, yeah. to build a soundtrack. Um, so horror film just invites that sonic experimentation um, and a film like, like Hexen which um, okay it has a structure um, but it's also quite loose in terms of its, its structure um, and it's so strong graphically um, that you just respond to what it is that you're given visually mm. um, and it pushes you to experiment um, and that's, always, that's the fun part for me um, and these films are, are you know really unique in their own ways even though they all fit under that horror genre kind of banner yeah um but each one of them has its own kind of you know psychological idiosyncrasies its own visual way or mode of storytelling um and all of these contribute to how you start conceiving of of music and oftentimes it's not even necessarily music it's what sounds yeah yeah (laughs) Um, and and that's that's usually for the last few years when i started working project by project as opposed to being with with a band um, you look at a film and you go, okay, well, what sounds do I hear here? Mm. Um, and what's the instrumentation and who's the personnel? 
Uh, and so for this one, because there's a text and there's a, nar a narration involved, um, I had to be very careful about not disrupting that too much, but at the same time, trying to create something really dramatic and, and, and provocative. So it sounds like every project you take on, there's different challenges, there's different elements you need to sort of uh, to overcome. When, when you're in the process of it, the thing I'm fascinated by is, is how, long, how long does it traditionally take for you to, to, to know you're done? And, and how in it are you? Are you spending hours, days on end in it? Is it sort of affecting how your day-to-day your -day goes? Because the subject matter is dark. The subject matter is incredibly dark. Um, but having said that, the film is quite playful in its own way. It's quite tongue-in-cheek. Um, in some ways, it's a, it's a bit of a riot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, despite some of, the, some of the images that you're presented with over the course of... Uh, the film which are, are not for the faint-hearted mm -hmm. but at the same time there is that sense of of, of play going on and um, whether that's visual play or or psychological play or ideological play um and it's 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 latching on to that sense that subtext that's important to me mm. so i find that the, the longest time i spent preparing ideas for music is watching the film and trying to figure out what that subtext is it's very easy to write music for for images in some ways um, in a lot of ways what's happening visually a narrative guides you um, and very much tells you what's needed um, but it's to get to that subtext mm -hmm. and to figure out how to align yourself with that that takes time that's about watching re-watching re-watching ad nauseum mm -hmm. um, but it really you have to inhabit the film and not even think about music because I think if you start to think about music a little bit too soon you end up thinking not that I you know I, I'm not from a classically trained background I don't have that language per se mm. But, you know, there's always a risk that you'll lapse back into a formula or a formulaic way of thinking. So uh, I often keep the writing of the music until very late in the day. Um, and it's about getting people in a room and experimenting and workshopping within a framework that I've spent a little bit of time building. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes that can be very specific in terms of, you know, co compositional elements. Other times it can be just down to, OK, well, so, for example, the last project, the score was built around a, a, a piano, a, a prepared piano that, that we gutted. Um, it looks horrific. It looks like we've done <laughs> untold, <laughs> you know, horrors to this beautiful instrument. But actually, this became the bedrock for you know all music that that existed across that Nosferatu remake, mm -hmm. Nosferatu. So I think in this way, in, for this particular film, it's about. I think we'll end up looking at Matthew Causey's voice, um, which is so rich and full of character. And Eric Mingus's voice, which is particularly, uh, I don't know what, what the term, I don't even know how to use the term, but, but, but the guy has such a huge presence. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's building music around those sonic elements. Um, so that's interesting. That's a challenge because yeah. I've, I've, I've mostly worked with silent film. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to worry too much about dialogue or that kind of narration. Um, certainly working a couple of years ago with Dracula mm -hmm. was a lovely challenge. Working last year with Night of the Living Dead presented a really nice challenge. And you mentioned um, the team that you were working with. So you mentioned a couple of the guys there and you mentioned the, how the process works. I think for when we spoke to you last, you had uh, Neil Jackson and uh, Margie Lewis. Um, so who have you got on board uh, this time around? So this time around, it's, uh, it's Eric Mingus. It's Matthew Cozy. So they'll be, as I said, providing the, the kind of narrational duties or taking care of that side of the house. And then, and they may play as well. We'll, we'll that's still to be determined. Mm -hmm. But the music will come from uh, myself, uh, Sean McElaine, Lisa Dowdall, 
and Catherine Sakura Mingus, who's actually Eric's wife. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so, so the process this time around, I think you mentioned a couple are, are out of the country. That's the nature of the beast. If you're a musician and you're you're doing well, I suppose. Um, does that does that add an element of of stress, or does that add another? It just does that make things a little bit more more tricky? Um, it certainly brings another layer of logistical concerns to, to, to the process, but it's never worried me in the past um, because you can do so much work remotely mm-hmm. and virtually. Um, getting people in a room together is important, but all of these people have worked on projects together before. We all you know, can start speaking a musical language um, very quickly uh, or, or certainly find common ground um, very quickly. Uh, so for me, that's, that's, that's not an issue. Um, it's really having enough time to to cultivate the theatrical side of the mm. presentation because i see you know a huge amount of scope for that uh, in this particular project um but not to the detriment of the film yeah you know, i mean you know burrow's narration is very present and and really pointed uh but it's also only there for about 20 minutes or so of the entire film so i don't want that to dominate the, the the spectacle as it were so it's just finding that happy marriage between you know that theatrical component the music but ultimately about being respectful mm-hmm. of, of the film and for the show itself you mentioned that you'd, you want a sort of a happy medium of people that are that share your love and, and people that to stumble upon it because of the occasion almost um what what can people actually expect from from uh, and what do you expect actually going into it because this is your first time doing this particular uh, this particular movie is there something that you that you want to feel over the course of the of the film there's a there's a it's funny actually one of, one of the nicest things that somebody can say to you after a show like this is that uh they forgot you were there um now that's not necessarily going to be the case with eric and matthew mm-hmm. who will have a, a presence on stage um but if you can create a, a certain cinematic experience where people are so caught up in the film that they forget you're there, then that's one of the things that I always aspire to. Whatever about scaring people or offering them a, you know, a, a, another way of looking at a film they're already familiar with or presenting them with a new film that might pique curiosity to go and look at all other kinds mm-hmm. of film from, from that kind of early European cinematic tradition. Um, that's great if it does that. Um, but it's nice to know that you've created a really seamless cinematic theatrical experience for people so really and it's kind of self-effacing because it's like well if nobody notices you <laughs> you're doing your job really well yeah. it's quite a unique situation actually in that sense yeah um so in terms of piquing people's interest and that being sort of a, a lightning rod a moment for them did you have a, a particular experience yourself where you've gotten into like what was your breakthrough moment for 20s 30s horror it was it was in in the Irish Film Institute about fifteen or sixteen years ago. Uh, I went to see uh, the wonderful German expressionist film called the, the Cabinet of Dr Caligari, uh, and it was a, a beautiful print of this film in Cinema One in the IFI, and it was presented silently, and it was quite an astonishing experience to sit there for 65, 70 minutes, um, and to be absorbed by what is effectively pure cinema. Um, and that just got me thinking. So because of, I guess, the way my brain works um, for a good chunk of the film, after I made the adjustment, mm-hmm. um, I could start. I, all I could think about was music and accompaniment. Um, and that kind of sat with me for a while uh, until I got up uh, enough guts to, to think about doing something about it. And I kind of did a little bit of research and, you know, looked around and found, you know, contemporary classical ensembles who'd done things, you know, more symphonic approaches 
um, none of which I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I spotted that uh, one of my indie heroes, Mark Linkas from Sparkle Horse, mm-hmm. had produced a score for it. And I thought, wow, if an indie mutt like him yeah. can do it, I can do it. <laughs> or at least I can try. And were you aware um, that there was that sort of lineage of people that have done it before? You Like Pet Shop Boys have done it. There's, you know, Shed, who's a, a techno DJ, uh, did Nosferatu a few years back. I, 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 was, I was aware of it in... in those bigger, those bigger presentations, like the Pet Shop Boys mm. and Battleship Potemkin and, you know, the, the Giorgio Moroder version of Metropolis from, from yeah. the 80s with, you know, Pat Benatar and, and, and Freddie Mercury, uh, you know. And then actually there's a, there's a great Dublin electronic band, uh, Deco, that, uh, that produced a score for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari about 20 years ago. Um, so I was aware of some, I guess, precursors what I was trying to do and in fact I worked on a festival in 2001 which brought over musicians who did this kind of live accompaniment although it was with contemporary experimental film music mm. but it was the same same idea same setup same theatrical experience um, but no I can't say I really was you know and were you were you interested in horror before oh yeah so oh, there's oh, always been so. yeah, yeah 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 no that that I mean the horror genre would have been my kind of mainstay growing up uh, I had a really I had an uncle who was not really in tune with film classification okay yeah, uh, yeah. so I saw a lot of films that was <laughs> age inappropriate <laughs> you know so you know watching Dawn of the Dead when you're 8 years old is, is not ideal or you know or watching any of David Cronenberg's films from the 70s when, you, when you're when you're not even 10 this, this can have a pretty damaging effect I so, like to think it hasn't damaged me too much though. but there is an exposure there that, that has as the butterfly effect of that is untold essentially like in terms of what you're actually doing now it, it keeps me returning to, mm. to, to those films um, I, I don't know if it's because of I don't know if it's some form of therapeutic <laughs> kind of process um, you know the, the seeing something like Dawn of the Dead when I was a kid was, was really really profound and really upsetting but at the same time it stayed with me mm. um, and, and, it, and I still watch the film regularly today um, but it took a while for me to realize what Romero was doing. You know, as an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, you don't really understand. You just you respond to things graphically and, and superficially. Um, it was only years later that I started to realize, actually, hang on, these films, especially that new wave of American horror from the late 60s, basically from Night of the Living Dead right up to the, the late 1970s, was incredibly politicized and culturally and socially aware and was asking some very hard questions. Um, Especially, you know, especially in, in, in a U.S. context. There's parallels to, to nowadays as well. Like, where do you where do you see modern horror? I'm I'm a bit of a wimp. I'll, I'll admit that Eric, uh, who's our editor, is he'd be more in line with you. But um, is it still something you're as passionate about, or did you feel that you know the essence of horror was the the Romeros and? I, I'm I'm probably a bit of a dinosaur in that regard. Um, I haven't watched anything from the last couple of years that I found really clever um, and a worthy addition to the canon that mm. directors like Cronenberg or you know Romero or John Carpenter or Wes Craven or any of these guys have contributed to um, apart from uh, Get Out yeah. from two yeah. years ago mm. that, that was a film that I thought wow this this is this is plugged into something interesting. It's unconventionally frightening, I suppose. So it's it's the it's not the jump scares necessarily. It's the the undertones that that I suppose the the thing that got you in at eight years old is that you've probably never seen, 
he'd never seen a zombie he'd never seen a zombie do what the zombies well, do and you know well the notion that you know a zombie could do that to another human being um was was quite terrifying you know they look like us and you've been lucky enough over the years to perform in places like the national concert hall and, and stuff like that do, is there any place in in is there any setting you would absolutely love to host host an event like like uh, what you'd be doing at puka uh trim castle Oh really? That's twenty twenty, uh I'm <laughs> <laughs> just putting it out there. That's right? the inside scoop, yeah. I'll come back to this in a year's time anyway. I'll I'll, I'll yeah. fight your cause for you. Here's hoping. And um just before we wrap up, I, I always find it fascinating when I speak to people about when they're so deeply involved in a process or, or in a in a project, how it manifests into into their dreams. Um we spoken with artists who were doing concept albums where they could only dream in that. Or did you did you feel yourself having stranger sort of more vivid dreams in and around the time of actually creating this uh i think i've had strange and vivid dreams since i was about eight years old so, <laughs> so, so this hasn't kind of <laughs> this hasn't brought about any radical change in, in uh in, in my uh in my sleeping hours well that that explains a lot in, a, in the not in the best possible way that explains a lot um thanks a million for your time just just to wrap up so the show is on the first of november in the art center in drogheda it's tickets are 12 euro and they're available from pukafestival.com there is a ton of other events happening from the 31st to the second which i will go into in detail after this uh, but for the time being thank you very much thank you thank you okay so that was matthew nolan there uh, talking about his show hexen which is taking place as part of puka festival for more information on the festival head over to pukafestival.com it takes place between october 31st and november 2nd and it's on in atboy trim and drogheda um, now as i said in that podcast i'm a little bit of a wimp so i probably probably won't make it to that because i'm too scared but i will be checking out the likes of cormac lisa o'neill david keenan and then personal favorite of mine just mustard is playing on a bill with amac and pillow queens as i said uh, tickets and information is available from pukafestival.com happy halloween bye